Talks like an animal, talks like an animal, must be an animal. Come here, the animals, talking animal, talking animal. Good morning. As always, that's our Johnny opening theme song by Rebecca Pulley. As a Rebecca Pulley fan, I'm thrilled to report that she has a brand new album out released mere days ago. It's called The Sea of Everything, and we'll hear more about it and a song from it later in today's show. This show, of course, being Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss, and my guest today is Natasha Daly a staff writer for the National Geographic, where she wrote the current cover story, The Hidden Cost of Wildlife Tourism. Teamed with photojournalist Kirsten Luce, Daly traveled across the world providing deeply reported, often visually striking coverage of the exploitation, and worse, inherent to wildlife tourism. While that might sound like fundamentally a familiar story, a key part of Daly's narrative involves the way travelers looking to post pictures of themselves on their social media feeds have exacerbated the harsh conditions for countless animals across the globe. We'll find out about that, more about the story, and how it was produced when I speak with Natasha Daly in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later, as I already noted, we'll hear a song from the new Rebecca Pulley album, The Sea of Everything. And by the way, Rebecca is part of WNF's first ever pub crawl happening this Saturday at three different breweries in St. Pete with music provided at each one. At one of those, Pinellas L Works, Rebecca and Rob Pastore will perform, but I'll provide details on that later in the show. Lastly, I want to remind you that WNF Summer Fun Drive is fast approaching, and I'm always assigned a ridiculously huge fundraising goal for an hour-long show. So I'm urging you to consider making an early pledge to support Talking Animals and Me. If you appreciate the interviews we do, including recent conversations with Dr. Pena Guzman, who wrote the scholarly paper exploring the question of animal suicide, John Sherva, who covers horse racing for the LA Times and broke the story about the horse deaths at Santa Anita, and of course the interview we're about to do with Natasha Daly, who wrote the cover story for the new issue of National Geographic. So if you'd like to keep us uh, doing that kind of work and uh, get us a running start on the fun drive, email me during today's show at DJ at WMNF.org or drop something in our tip jar, will ya? Go to WMNF.org, find Talking Animals on the schedule, click on that part of the schedule, and our tip jar is right there on the top for Talking Animals. Thank you. Right now, though, let's get to Natasha with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing DJ at WMNF.org. Org or texting 813-433-0885. This is Natasha Daly on Talking Animals on WNF. Good morning, Natasha. Good morning, Duncan. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us today on Talking Animals and, and sitting through all that long blather that uh, was our prelude there. But uh, we'll, of course, be delving into the story uh, that you wrote in a minute or two. But I'd like to start with a few 
Natasha Daly questions, if I could. For example, I saw the other day something official that referred to you as National Geographic Wildlife Crime Reporter. So how did you land on that beat, and what exactly do you cover in that capacity? Right. So my so I cover animals, all animal stories of you know various genres and types, um, science stories, conservation stories. But I, I focus particularly on animal exploitation and, and animal welfare. So uh, yes, that can mean reporting on crime stories. That can mean reporting on you know welfare stories. Recently, I wrote a story on um, how uh, due to Game of Thrones, uh, demand for huskies has sort of risen over the last several years and you know what that kind of means for huskies. So there's never a shortage of stories about animals. That is, that is for sure. Yeah. And I guess some of those are more or less crime oriented, but it just sounds like that's part of the overall beat that you do cover. Exactly. So from reading the piece, you're obviously an accomplished reporter. Where did you work before arriving at National Geographic? So I worked at uh, a couple nonprofits in Washington, in Washington D.C. as an editor, and I uh, started at National Geographic uh, four years ago. And um, since then, I have mostly focused on animal reporting. Okay, so alongside photographer Kirsten Luce, this piece that, that we are talking about goes deep and wide as you guys did some serious globe trotting. Tell me how you initially approached the story. Like, what was the starting off point? What was the premise? What did you guys at least think you were going to do, even if it may have changed as the project? Unfolded. Yeah, so we actually started reporting the story almost two years ago now, which is wild because I, I can't believe it's been that long. Um, we started in the Amazon rainforest. We were actually looking at port cities along the Amazon River um, that are kind of popular destinations for tourists. And we were looking at this particular phenomenon where it turned out that local residents were pulling wild animals out of the jungle, including sloths, caimans, anacondas, monkeys, um, and keeping them in captivity for tourists to come and hold and interact with and, you know, take photos with. So we, in documenting this phenomenon, we, uh, we realized that, and, you know, in talking to experts who actually study this in the field, that unfortunately for some of these animals, these situations are often the death sentence, especially for sloths. Uh, they're one of the most popular animals in these experiences because they're cuddly, they look like they're smiling, um, but they sleep, you know, almost 22 hours a day in the wild, being handled by tourists all day long is very stressful. So it, it turned out that, you know, it, it, biologists who were working on this issue said that, you know, these sloths don't live very long and then they're replaced by new ones. So this um, story published in October 2017, our story on this phenomenon in the Amazon. But then after that, we realized that, you know, this is not this captive wildlife tourism industry is not something by any means that's limited to one place in the world. It happens everywhere, and we really wanted to sort of expand from that and tell a global story about, you know, what is going on in this industry and what is driving it. I'm sorry to say I must have missed the 2017 Amazon-oriented piece because one of the things that almost is a sort of side note, but I don't know if anything really in your current story is, could be considered a side note, but I was really struck by the sloth thing. I thought, I guess I just didn't realize that sloths were so much part of this kind of experience as well. And so I guess you had that history from the previous story, but it just seems like, really? Sloths? <laughs> and not to mention that, as you say, they're fairly fragile. So sadly, they don't really live long in those kind of experiences where they're being encountered and held all those hours a day. So I guess they just keep getting replaced by fresh sloths. Right, exactly. And Ugh. that's sort of the, yeah, this, this situation in particular, I mean, this situation in the Amazon, um, 
these it, it is illegal in Brazil, Colombia, and Peru, and Peru to remove wild animals from the jungle, especially for commercial purposes, which is what that was. You know, you're, the people doing this are making money off uh, from from tourists who are paying to hold them. Uh, so. Yeah, I mean, this is something that was, I had, did not know this existed until we went to document it. Um, and, it, it, you know, it turns out that it was very popular. We went, and there was one of these experiences we went to actually a few days in a row. We went back to the same place, and each day, boatfuls of tourists would come in, sometimes 50 at a time, to participate in these activities. And, you know, the, you're there for maybe an hour you're cuddling these animals, and then you kind of get on the boat and leave, you know, not really realizing what is maybe this life is like for that animal that you're paying to hold. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to get into that because that's in some ways kind of a core aspect, I think, of the story is that people aren't aware. I mean, their hour might seem innocuous or whatever to them, but what the overall picture means for those animals, and especially in most cases, what those animals have had to go through so that they can be cuddly and held or bathed or ridden or sat on or whatever. And, but anyways, we'll come back to a bit more of that in detail in a moment. But I guess I'm curious to know, in the wake of the, the 2017 piece about the Amazon, when you guys set out on this newer piece, did you know kind of like, okay, here's where we, based on that other story, here's where we think we should go, and then let's see what we find? Or did you kind of keep extending it as you guys did more reporting and Kirsten did more amazing photography and then said, oh my God, I guess we should go here now as well? I mean, wh- how much of it was by clear design? initially and how much was sort of improvising as you discovered more things along the way? Yeah, that's a really good question. So we knew that we kind of wanted to look at hot spots around the world where these activities are really, really popular and where they're a huge draw for tourists. So um, right away through doing research, we knew that Thailand was going to be somewhere that we really wanted to go and spend some time in because the wildlife tourism industry in Thailand is a massive part of the economy. Um, you know, getting close to elephants and tigers are at the top of, you know, most people's bucket list for that country. So we knew we wanted to go to Thailand, and we did. We spent a month there. Um, and then uh, I'm sure we'll get back to that in a bit um, in yeah. terms of what we saw there. But um, we realized after we kind of had our experience there that it was important to us to, to include a bit of a tonal shift in the story to kind of make clear that these experiences aren't only happening happening in tropical sort of exotic places um, around the world, but they, they happen in many different forms um, in many places. So in doing some more research, uh, we looked a bit more into uh, Russia, what's happened, what happens in Russia with, you know, wild animals, and we realized that in Russia, many of the situations include uh, kind of traveling shows that come to the people. So that was an interesting new element to us because it would allow us to explore, you know, rather than people traveling to visit animals, this was animals actually being brought to the people in traveling shows. So, um, it, you know, it allowed us to explore all these different facets of wildlife tourism and how it makes, actually takes many different forms around the world. Um, so, yeah, I think it was a bit of a mix. We knew there were things we wanted to hit on um, and explore. And then as we went, we sort of realized that, you know, we uncovered more layers, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. I sort of figured it almost had to be part by design and partly like, oh, my God, once you're out there, we got to do this more. We got to veer off here, or we hear about something along the way and need to go report on that. So uh, it makes total sense. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Natasha Daly, who wrote the cover story of the current issue of National Geographic The Hidden Cost of Wildlife Tourism. One key element that we'll be getting into uh, momentarily as well, making the story kind of much more a product of 2019, is the way travelers pursue photos and selfies with exotic animals for their social media 
media feeds. So if you'd like to ask Natasha a question about any aspect of the story or just what we've talked about so far or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. So yeah, I mean, we will absolutely, uh, a couple things you mentioned, we'll, we'll double back to. One is Thailand. But one thing that when you talked about Russia, a number of the conditions and the exploitation and other horrors befalling sort of elephants and bears and tigers, et cetera, are sadly not unfamiliar to me and I'm sure not unfamiliar to many of our listeners, though sometimes the specifics are. But I have to say the pop-up aquarium with the beluga whales caught me off guard in all kinds of ways. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, you know, I have to say I, I had the same reaction when I found out that aquariums exist. And that was a huge part of the reason why we wanted to go to Russia, period, was to document these aquariums. And and what they are is um, there are actually only a few known places of traveling aquariums in the world. So, of course, everyone is familiar with traveling circuses involving land animals, but these are actually um, traveling aquatic shows. So uh, belugas and dolphins are put on trucks and brought from city to city um, where they will stay for about six weeks at a time, depending on, you know, how many tickets are being sold. Um, and actually, the, we visited a couple of these shows and they're basically uh, consist of these pop-up inflatable aquariums that are plopped down in the middle of, you know, a parking lot of a shopping mall. And you go inside and there's a, a pool uh, where dolphins and belugas are, you know, waiting to perform and people come and they give a, a couple shows a day. So, you know, in talking to uh, marine mammal experts in Russia, uh, continually over and over again, it was emphasized to us that this, these traveling oceanariums are... Um, kind of the most troubling aspect of marine mammal welfare in the country. Um, the, the, the sheer size of the pool is much smaller than it is a, you know, a stationary aquarium um, in the country. Uh, the fact that they're moving around all the time, uh, experts say that it, it, you know, it can be very stressful for these animals. They can sometimes be on the road for you know, up to a day, sometimes a couple of days. Um, so this was, this was, yeah, I mean, it was, it was absolutely shocking and it was um, important for us to actually go and see it for ourselves. Yeah, no doubt. Because again, can't emphasize enough how much, of course, your writing and reporting was fantastic, but it's certainly matched and complemented by Kirsten's photography. So there's at least one image, as I recall, of this pop-up aquarium with the beluga whales. Anyway, there's a lot of things that haunted me about this story. And some maybe were even more egregious than that. But I guess just because I was so like unaccustomed to that and just thought even stationary marine parks, I think as we know and certainly cover a lot on this kind of a show, are rife with problems. But the fact that it's a smaller portable thing and animals kind of as, again, uh, sort of sensitive as beluga whales are being trucked and then put in sort of almost like a big it looks like almost like a big kiddies pool that you'd have on a hot summer day in the front yard yeah i mean yeah. seriously yeah anyway it reminded me almost of this and i think i wrote this in the story but like a, a one of those bouncy castles like it, it was yeah kind of inflatable tent um and you know it's that way because they you know have to set it up at you know each destination so it has to be very portable um but yeah I, you know i can't say that that was you know it was you asked before about if there are things along the way we sort of discovered, and that that is an example. Um, we did plenty of research before setting out to do this story, but um, these pop-up aquariums are, are something that were completely new to us. Yeah, and again, pop-up coffee shop, great. Pop-up taco stand or, or art exhibit, all great. But pop-up uh, aquarium, I mean, seriously, that, anyway, I'm still having trouble, obviously, with that. But uh, So one sort of central character in your piece is Mina. Maybe you could talk about her and, and why she plays a significant role in your story. 
Right. So uh, we actually encountered this young elephant named uh, Mina at a facility um, in Chiang Mai, Thailand. And Chiang Mai is a really popular destination for tourists uh, visiting the country. And there are many different elephant attractions in and around the city. Um, we, we we went to, you know, one camp and uh, we encountered a young Mina. She's four years old and uh, she has been performing in a show. And, you know, for anyone unfamiliar with elephant shows, uh, they're, they typically involve younger elephants performing tricks like kicking soccer balls, um, you know, shooting basketballs, throwing darts, and painting pictures is something that's a big feature of many of these shows. So Mina was actually a painting elephant, and her mahout, which is uh, a word for trainer, uh, would sort of guide her with a metal hook to paint this picture. And, you know, so after the show, we kind of wandered over and we wanted to see where she was kept, and we noticed that she was kept on this chain. Um, it was around her ankle, which is the, the you know, typical way to kind of um, contain captive elephants at these facilities. But we noticed that um, around the chain, the shackle on her foot were spikes that were actually uh, pressing into her skin, not breaking her skin, but putting pressure um, around her ankle. And, and we noticed it was difficult for her to put her foot down. So, you know, this is something that immediately struck us as something that was uh, unlike other things we had seen so far. Um, and so we, we, we ended up following Mina, and we talked to her trainer, and we talked to the owner of the facility, and we ended up returning uh, later that night with permission because we wanted to see if she was still on this spike shackle, and um, it turned out that she was. And so this was something that, uh, you know, her trainer told us she's on the spike shackle because she tends to kick, and it trains her not to. Uh, so this was an example of maybe something that the average tourist going to watch one of these shows wouldn't see or notice. Um, so this is, uh, you know, something we really wanted to do was be able to document the things that tourists who innocently go to watch these experiences may not know about the way these animals are kept. Yeah, and I guess I think it might have been in the accompanying video or mini documentary that, that also goes with this, the story, of course, is a multimedia piece. So I think it was in the video that I'm recalling. You went back, because I think you were told by one, the Mahouts or maybe the owner or whatever that, that the reason there was these spikes on Mina's chain was because she did kick and they wanted to keep her from kicking, but that that was only on a certain time uh, of the day, a certain portion of the day, and that it was never on at night or something to that extent. So, exactly. of course, being a, an intrepid reporter, you went out at night, I guess, somehow, or you got clearance somehow to, to go see about this. And sure enough, there was Mina with the chain with the spikes in it. Exactly, yeah. We, we had permission to go back at night. One of the managers um, actually met us there and took us in. And yeah, I mean, we saw her with the, she still had the, the spike shackles around her ankle. And I asked the manager, you know, why? And he said he didn't know. Um, so I think this was an example of something that um, sort of we were told one thing that, you know, she doesn't wear it at night. And then it, it was it revealed that, you know, the reality was, was a different situation. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's something that I think sort of encapsulates some of the, uh, you know, deception that runs through this industry in a lot of ways. Um, often tourists are told if they ask questions, um, uh, you know, they may be told one thing, but the reality is much different. So I think it was important for us that we were able to document that and include that in our documentary and in the story to showcase, you know, some of these realities that may not be apparent. Yeah, we'll come back and definitely develop that in a moment. But we've had a caller that's been holding for a, a few minutes here. So let's get them involved in the conversation. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Natasha Daly. Hey there, my name's Karen. Hi. 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 I'm just curious. You mentioned the dolphin. I came in on that because I had dialed 
but what about the animals in the United States that we ride at zoos or swim with dolphins? That's got to stress them out as well. Um, well, just being in captivity. Right. Do you do, so, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Do you, I mean, do you do any studies on those as well? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So you bring up, you know, riding elephants, for example, and another example is... Um, you know, getting close to tigers. Uh, these experiences do happen all over the United States. It's absolutely not limited to um, to other countries or other places. And uh, so, yes, we, we actually went to Hawaii and we were looking at one experience that involved uh, swimming with dolphins. And actually, you know, in contrast to what we saw in Russia, this experience um, actually involved uh, very high standards of care. Uh, the animals were obviously, you know, treated with veterinary care. They were well-fed. Um, so I think that this, it's really important to sort of look at the spectrum of everything. And um, it's a live debate whether dolphins, for example, should be kept in captivity despite high standards of care. Uh, you know, it's still, you know, up for debate whether it's something that can ever be truly humane. Um, but I think that the key takeaway, and this is what I learned through my reporting, is that it's so important to assess individual situations on a case-by-case basis rather than sort of looking at the whole industry at large as this, you know, something that could be seen as negative. So what you really want to do is sort of look at each place that you plan to visit and sort of assess it based on um, how the animals are being cared for, uh, what um, you, you want to ask questions, anything you might be uncomfortable with. So I think, yeah, it, it's, it's tough and it's complicated, but I think that um, it's important to think of each place as individually um, uh, you should be assessing each place individually. Thanks for your call. You're welcome. You guys have a great day. You too. Thanks. Thank you. So speaking of that part of the story that is about the swim with dolphins, I mean, the, to me, there was an, sort of an interesting dichotomy, at least in part of that, which is that, and again, maybe it's a measure of the complexity, uh, maybe even nuance at work with swim with dolphin experiences being on a spectrum, as you just noted, Natasha. But your reporting reveals, like, intriguing, like I say, I kind of thought it was a dichotomy, where... You speak of people who have seen blackfish, so have stopped patronizing marine parks like SeaWorld, etc., but have no reluctance to engage in a swim in a dolphin encounter. So can you maybe describe or just address a little bit, at least the seeming contradictory element of that to me, and it may have been overall uh, contradictory? Yeah, I mean, I think kind of, you know, maybe what that comes down to is that um, people maybe perceive, uh, you know, marine mammal shows as something that's different from swimming with these animals. So, yeah, as you mentioned, um, you know, and there's been a, there was a lot of outcry after that the documentary Blackfish came out, um, you know, people kind of speaking out about these animals performing in water. Um, and then, you know, but as you see, as you mentioned, uh, swimming with dolphins is still a very popular activity around the world. But ultimately, I think what this comes back to is looking. It's so important to do your research about each individual place you go to. It's really difficult to paint everywhere with the same brush. Um, you know, the National Aquarium in Baltimore uh, announced a couple of years ago that they're actually going to be retiring all their dolphins to a seaside sanctuary um, in the next few years. So I think that that's a great example of how this the, the attitudes toward these issues, both within the industry and from the public, are starting to shift. So I think it will be interesting to see, you know, whether 
that continues and how, how people may change their attitudes towards swimming with dolphins um, in some of the ways they've already changed their mind about shows. Well, I guess the fundamental thing that all those things would have in common is that whether it's an orca or a dolphin or whatever, they're in captivity. So, yeah, they're not performing shows, I guess, technically. But, yeah, the swimming encounter, I think, for people who think, hey, these dolphins shouldn't be in any sort of captive situation, that's troubling. But I think the key thing that you that really hit with the caller and, and, and overall is that you really have to ask questions. And I think if you're going somewhere, especially internationally or whatever, where there might be some animal encounters that you're interested in, I, I think you really have to ask kind of tough questions and be Natasha Daly-like and sort of really keep after it. Because as you saw firsthand, I mean, you got some baloney in your answer about Mina, and but you're a reporter and you thought, okay, I don't know that I buy this. And you went and checked it. And of course it was baloney. So if you're a tourist planning a trip, I just don't know unless people are listening to this and reading your article and saying, okay, well, we have to be way more vigilant or just better yet, steer clear of anything that's not just animals in the wild in their own habitat and world just free. Yeah, I mean, it's just so important uh, to do your research ultimately. And I think this is like a key takeaway of this whole thing and that is that the whole industry is so driven by consumer demand. Uh, so as people and if people start to demand different types of experiences they want to give their money to, the market uh, will always follow that. So that's why it's just, you know, people and readers and, you know, citizens are absolutely at the heart of this story and have the power to make change if that's something they want to do. Um, yeah, and I mean, in terms of doing your homework, that's what's so important. So I, I you know, I recommend reading um, the reviews, of course, but especially looking at the one and two star reviews for a place. Because um, often the negative reviews are where people have detailed animal welfare concerns, so mm-hmm. that can be really helpful. Um, you know, beyond that, you you kind of want to be able to, you know, by reading our story, for example, you can at natgeo.com slash wildlife tourism, um, arm yourself with the sort of information and knowledge that you need in order to, in order to assess for yourself whether there may be a red flag at a particular facility. And what you kind of always want to you know, look for if animal welfare is something you're concerned about is how those animals are able to sort of um, engage in their own natural behaviors at that facility. If they have room to roam, if they can interact with other um, individuals from their own species. Um, And anytime sort of an experience crosses the line from observation to interaction, then you might start to get into, you know, the training that's involved to get that animal into that position. These are all things to think about. Yeah, for sure. And uh, we've talked a couple of different times about Thailand and various kind of elephant experiences in Thailand. I mean, I don't know how detailed we want to get about what's required so that people can hang out with elephants, ride elephants, bathe elephants, and so on. But again, I think it's part of an overriding theme of your story that people enjoying these animal encounters and certainly these days photographing them generally have no idea what goes on behind the scenes to enable those things to happen. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and part of that is because you will go, you, say you're on vacation and you go to have an experience and you'll go somewhere for maybe maybe a day, but often just a few hours. Um, you'll go in, you'll sort of, you'll ride the elephant or bathe the elephant or cuddle the tiger cub. You'll get your photos and then you'll leave. And, you know, it's, it's almost impossible for the average person to see how these animals are trained and where they're kept and, and sort of the, the, the life that goes on outside of that very brief encounter. Well, again, I think you just have to first decide for yourself what, what you're willing 
to do and not do if you right. indeed have animal welfare concerns. Because one of the things, as much as there's some, as we already touched on, some very difficult things that you report on and that Kirsten photographed, but you do uh, note that it's not all bad. You spotlight an elephant sanctuary that, for the most part, does things right. Yeah, uh, we visited a place called Elephant Valley um, in Chiang Rai, Thailand. And um, what was notable about this experience was that, uh, you know, they had five elephants who had previously worked in the logging industry and trekking camp, um, now living in these sort of open pastures uh, where, you know, they were able to sort of roam freely, they were able to interact with, with the other five elephants. Um, but the key thing is that visitors um, to this place were not able to get close to the elephants. They weren't able to ride them. They weren't able to bathe them. They weren't able to interact with them beyond um, giving them a couple of snacks through a fence at, at snack time. Um, but, you know, what this means is that in order for these, for people to have that experience, it doesn't necessarily have to rely on trained elephants because that's the key. In order for an elephant to get close enough to a person safely to interact, um, that elephant will have had to have been trained in some capacity. And often what we found on our reporting is that that training is, is fear-based. Um, so, yeah, a sort of experience that encourages observation only means that that training isn't necessary in order for that experience to continue to be offered. And again, if you're going on a safari or something, the animals are absolutely in the wild. There's no training. There's no restraints, constraints, whatever. They're just, I mean, you may or may not see them that day, uh, which could be frustrating, I suppose, if you have your heart set on the big five or whatever it might be. But the animals are just doing what they do. And if you happen to see them and get a chance to photograph them, probably from a distance, great. But that's yeah, that's the kind of thing that I think for those of us who really care about animals and animal welfare is fine. And some of these other things I think are, again, as you've noted, along a continuum and, and then the other end of it you end up at a bad place that we may come back to uh, again. But let me know, folks, again, this is Talking Animals on WNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Natasha Daly, a staff writer at National Geographic, who wrote the cover story of the current issue entitled The Hidden Cost of Wildlife Tourism. If you'd like to join the conversation, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. So one of our uh, emailers, Natasha, says, is there an argument for having human experiences with animals that results in the savings of species? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. So, you know, often, the you know, we would visit facilities and sometimes they tout the fact that they give money back to conservation or, you know, they're, they're by having this experience, you're somehow helping animals. Um, I think that in some places that we went, uh, it's really important to be aware that this is often used as a marketing tool and it may very well be true that they give money back to conservation and helping animals in the wild, but... Um, you know, you have to also consider the fact that, and based on what we learned, that, you know, the animals in captivity are there for your entertainment. And, um, you know, it's important to, to kind of weigh that is, you know, having this experience um, and, you know, generating money for this facility. And then maybe in turn, they will give some of that, those proceeds back to conservation. Um, is that something that ultimately, um, you know, justifies to you that that's something that you, you, you feel comfortable doing? And the answer may be yes, and that's fine. But I just think it's important. Yeah, it's important to be aware, and this is something that we, we found, that um, there are obviously other factors at play, especially concerning the animals that are actually there for your entertainment. Right. I think there, and sadly sometimes uh, zoos and other facilities spew the conservation line, and sadly, not to sound too cynical, but again, been 
looking at this for a long time and doing shows about this kind of stuff for a long time. And so that really don't hold up. I mean, it sounds really great. And then I think you, some people that want to go to a zoo or do some of these uh, encounters have a clearer conscience, but it in no way helps the species and in no way has any sort of plus in a conservation uh, effort. But uh, So let's talk about, well, a few things. One is that bears, again, there were some pretty uh, wild uh, images that Kirsten captured. There were so many either firsts or things I just hadn't thought about or, or even knew existed. I mean, the, nothing I don't think can compare for me to the, the beluga whales and the uh, pop-up aquarium. But I don't think I'd previously seen, I've seen, of course, dancing bears and all kinds of things that bears are required to do for people's entertainment. But I don't think I'd previously seen or known about a dancing polar bear. Yes. Uh, yeah. This is another situation that we also did not know existed until we were in Russia. And, you know, people had started telling us that this uh, polar bear traveling circus show existed and we really wanted to track it down and find where it was so we could go document it. And we did. We found it um, in this town called Kazan, Russia, and we, we flew there to document the show. And, yeah, I mean, what's the show? It was a show on ice, so it consisted of a lot of kind of standard circus stuff, performances, acrobatics. But, you know, the star of the show were these polar bears that came out at the end, and there were four of them, um, and they all came out on ice. It was a show on ice, and their trainer had a metal rod, and the polar bears were wearing metal uh, muzzles. Um, and so, you know, the, the trainer would sort of do a trick with one of them at a time, and the trick was, you know, ballroom dancing or uh, playing an instrument or other things. But but what really struck me is that while um, one polar bear was kind of doing a, a trick, the other three would be uh, lying down on the ice and sort of rubbing their bodies in it and scratching it up with their nails and, and, and eating it. And it was something that for both Kirsten and I, um, it struck us because it was, it was sort of visceral contact that this polar, this captive polar bear had with this natural ice that, you know, they would be living on in the wild. And, you know, just I think just watching that is something that really sat with us um, and was really shocking that, you know, the polar bear is the symbol of conservation, yeah. um, you know, for so many organizations around the world to sort of see these sort of this entertainment that they were providing in captivity was, was definitely shocking. Well, so we've got a couple more callers, and we're sort of nearing the end of our time, but let's try to get at least one of the callers uh, involved. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Natasha Daly. Hi. Hi, go ahead, please. Um, hi, my name's Deanna, and I have got a lot of feelings about this. Um, my cousin was a pachyderm handler with Ringling Brothers for many years and has been a pachyderm handler his whole life. And um, I was with him with the baby elephants. He was the head of that when that was the main liner. And he was with them 24-7. He loved them. They were his children, and he treated them with great love and kindness and gentleness. And um, I guess since he had them from a young age, uh, they were w very well taken care of with his dog. Number two is, I'm uh, because of his association, also very familiar with the Big Cat Rescue in Sarasota. And one of the things she is not addressing, and no one really seems to, to understand, is these animals that are in really bad shape or in these crazy little sideshows, when those clothes, where are those animals going to go? They cannot go back to the wild. There must be places that they can go and be taken care of. And in Sarasota, yes, she does do a little circus show because there's no financing for this. It's all good to say, don't do this, don't do this, but and, and take care of the animals and don't put them, put them on display. But 
Somebody has to feed them, and that's what they're doing. And and she is not. I haven't heard one word about people like Our Lady in in um, in Sarasota who does the big cat rescue. Who she is doing the best she can with these animals that have nowhere to go. There's no zoo for them, and um, and on the other hand, I always like to make the point, especially. SeaWorld was one of my favorite places. And where are our children going to learn about the oceans that we want them to take care of without these huge aquariums? Okay, so that's what I have to say. All right. Well, thank you for your call. I mean, I don't think too many of the, the observations you had would probably align with most of the folks that listen to the show and probably the, the folk that uh, host the show. I mean, maybe it's a slightly different name, but there is a, a, a big cat rescue in Tampa that it actually is a sanctuary. There's no shows, and that's where former uh, circus uh, tigers, including from Ringling and others, go, but to be in sanctuary. So uh, I think that's in fairly sharp contrast to the facility that you're talking about. But I appreciate your comments and we certainly welcome all views on this show. So I guess in our final couple of minute or two here, Natasha, we're unfortunately really reaching the end of our time. But one thing I talked about early on and then referred to, and then maybe we can come back to it one final time with a bit more detail, is that part of that of this story, I mean, unfortunately for years, there's been stories about kind of the exploitation and difficulties of exotic animals in various encounters and other things. But it really seems like what makes your story different and very much a product of its time is the impact social media has had um, and people want to take pictures, they want to have selfies. There's, uh, you have a scene in your piece about a uh, Instagram influencer at some sort of ritzy resort. So, I mean, that, that has really been, I think, kind of a game changer in some ways and certainly not for the better. Can you address that just in our last minute or two here? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, as you say, social media has really, these experiences aren't necessarily anything new, but social media really has changed the landscape for them. Uh, so, you know, in essence, someone might go to an experience um, in Thailand with an elephant and take a picture of themselves with the elephant and post it to social media. And, you know, then all their friends and family will see it as well and maybe want to do the same thing. And it's interesting you brought up the Instagram influencers with, you know, our, our individuals um, on Instagram who have lots of followers and in turn they often work with you know, brands and, and various uh, businesses uh, to, to share experiences um, to, uh, you know, advertise for those businesses. And, you know, I think it's, you bring up a good point that, yeah, in the story, we, we actually visited a, a pretty uh, responsible place, actually, um, and met an Instagram influencer there who had a, you know, an experience with an elephant. Uh, an elephant was on a chain, but it was a very long chain, able to kind of roam around um, in a natural landscape. Um, and, you know, she was against elephant riding, and she spoke about that on Instagram, and she shared this photo of her with this elephant um, in this natural setting. Um, you know, which is all well and good, and, you know, obviously is trying to use her platform to educate her audience, which is so important. But, you know, what we found is that because of the influence that social media has, you know, what someone might do in order to have a similar beautiful kind of picturesque experience is, um, you know, they might do a Google search for, a, you know, a responsible elephant sanctuary. Now, the place she went to costed about $700 a night. So that is very inaccessible for the average uh, traveler. Um, and there are many places, but there are many places around Thailand that have sort of popped up to fill that demand that, that, that's been kind of, you know, uh, become popular through social media, these, these kind of green natural types of experiences. And, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that any of these newer places are as humane as somewhere else. So, you know, I think that, 
yeah, social media is absolutely just kind of generating demand for this. But what means, what's still so important is to do your homework about this individual place that you're planning on visiting. That's so important, obviously. And uh, so we just are near and near the time. Let me squeeze in a couple of emails. There's at least a call or two that I'm afraid we're not going to probably have time for. But one of our emailers says, thank you for this. I learned to love wild animals from nature shows on TV, not exploitation. So that's a uh, important overall uh, comment and may partly address uh, some of what our caller was raising just prior to this. And then another email which says, the fact that the polar bears were wearing muzzles says they should not be there. So that's obviously somebody who's seen polar bear photo that Kirsten shot uh, online with a piece, because indeed that polar bear, at least the one that is featured in the story, is uh, muzzled. Okay, so I think we have reached the end of our time And but one thing that stuck, and actually I don't know how this could how we know this, but one quick thing back to the social media thing. I think at one point you say in the story, uh, selfies have grown 300%. Yeah, how, how do we measure that? How do we know that? It's actually really difficult to measure that. Um, that okay. was uh, research that uh, an NGO, World Animal Protection, had conducted over uh, a long, several months. Um, and they had determined through evaluating, you know, hashtags associated with these sorts of pictures that, um, yeah, that, that uh, the number of photos being posted of these experiences and being tagged with particular hashtags had grown almost 300% um, over four years since 2015. So, yeah, I mean, this is just a, it's, it's one study on an ex, on a, a corner of this industry, but it just, it lines up with what we can see by just scrolling through social media that, that these experiences are more prevalent on our Instagram and Facebook feeds than maybe they were six or seven years ago. Okay, well, that's, I guess, the point at which we need to leave it. So uh, we've been speaking with Natasha Daly, again, staff writer at the National Geographic and author of the current uh, cover story, The Hidden Cost of Wildlife Tourism, and uh, available online. You can just really search for National Geographic Wildlife Tourism, and I believe the story pops right up. Again, there's all kinds of great reporting that we didn't even get to touch on. It's a pretty sprawling piece, and again, fantastic photographs by uh, Kirsten and a video piece as well. And anyway, there's a lot to it and there's uh, uh, a lot of educational value there too and, and even some jarring things for those of us who thought we knew a lot about the subject. So so well done and thank you so much, Natasha, for joining us today on uh, Talking Animals. Thank you so much for having me, Duncan. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. In a few moments, I'll play a song from the brand new Rebecca Pulley album, The Sea of Everything. If you tuned in after the beginning of today's show, you may have missed my reminder that the Talking Animals bouncy theme song that opens each week's show was composed and played by Rebecca Pulley. So, if she had created a song especially for your show, don't you think you'd want to highlight her new album? Of course you would. We'll get to more of that in a moment. Right now, it's time to step into the comedy corner. This is Martha Kelly, who you might know from the great FX show Baskets, alongside Zach Galifianakis and Louie Anderson. With her piece called Animal Road Trip, this is Martha Kelly in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. One of the four times that I've moved from L.A. to Austin, I drove there uh, with my four cats and my dog in the car. And um, I rented a giant SUV and I put these big kennels in the back for the cats where I had food and water dishes and litter boxes and blankets. But even with all those amenities, there were a lot of angry accusations coming from the back of the car. Um, for a couple hours, and then it just got completely silent. And that made me kind of nervous, because I didn't know if maybe they were planning something. So I just pulled over, and I called a family meeting, and I just, um, I explained to the cats, like, I know that this drive across country is difficult, but 
living in Austin again is going to make life better for all of us. And there is no in team. So... That was Martha Kelly with a piece called Animal Road Trip, taken from her Comedy Central Half Hour. Now let's talk a bit about Rebecca Pulley, and here's something from her new record, The Sea of Everything. It's a terrific album. I've been absolutely loving it, and I'm sure you'll hear at least a sampling of it this Saturday when she and Rob Pastore perform at Pinellas Ale Works as part of WNF inaugural Pub Crawl. It's going to be a blast featuring lots of great music, lots of great things to drink, lots of fun. Details can be found at WMNF.org. But right now, let's check out some new Rebecca Pulley music from the Sea of Everything. This is Happiness from Rebecca Pulley on Talking Animals on WMNF.
New music from Rebecca Pulley. The album's called The Sea of Everything, and what we heard there was happiness. And again, she'll be part of WNS. First pub crawl this weekend in St. Pete. Again, the stops are Brewed the World. Well, there'll be some live WNF DJs, then Pinellas Ale Works with Rebecca Pulley and Rob Pastore. And then after that, Cage Brewing with the Lint Rollers. So it's going to be a great, uh, great evening, all kinds of fun. Come out and say hello and go to WNF.org to get your uh, tickets and find out more details. Coming up at 11 on uh, WNF, it's Rob Lorai with Radioactivity, extending this four-hour block of interviews, phone calls, and news, and more, including in the noon hour, Midpoint with Nola Lillet. Then at 1 p.m., John Gilmore presides over executive session. Then the music kicks back in at 2 p.m. with Scott Elliott in the All Souls edition of It's the Music, where he has not only his usual assortment of great music planned, but I know he's going to emphasize some Joe Jackson in advance of uh, his concert coming up. So that's going to be fantastic here in WNF 2 p.m. with It's the Music, All Souls edition of It's the Music. I'm Duncan Strauss. You are listening to Talking Animals. We have just about reached the end of today's edition. I invite you to uh, visit TalkingAnimals.net for audio archives of every show we've ever broadcast. iTunes podcasts are available there, too. There are also links to our Facebook page, our Twitter feed, and more. Please like us on Facebook, the show and or me, Instagram as well. Follow me on Twitter. You can also subscribe to our e-newsletter to find out about our guests a couple of days beforehand and other news that's going on in the Talking Animals world. That's all found at TalkingAnimals.net. I'm Duncan Strauss. Thanks very much for listening. Have a good week. Be kind to animals. Be kind to others. Be kind to yourself. This is Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa, Brandon, Clearwater, Largo, Wikiwachi, and beyond. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks again to Natasha Daly for joining us. Thanks for your emails and calls. Sorry we didn't get to quite all of them that we were hoping to. But um, if you haven't had a chance to uh, read Natasha's piece, I think you'll uh, find it uh, illuminating and rewarding on all kinds of levels, not to mention the incredible photographs that uh, that Kirsten uh, Luce has provided as well. So we'll catch up with you next Wednesday on Talking Animals. Rob Lawyer is up next after NPR News headlines for five minutes. So we'll see you then. It's WMNF Tampa. NPR News coming right up. Thanks.